0: This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. Hey there, IT Visionaries listeners. It's time to supercharge your network with Zayo, the North American leader in modern network infrastructure. Zayo connects critical data centers across the United States, Canada, and Europe, with high capacity, metro fiber, and extensive long haul dark fiber. Trusted by the world's most innovative companies, Zayo embodies what's next in networking. Discover Zayo's expansive network maps on their website and see where their network can take you. With low latency, reliable 400G and 800G enabled routes, it's the modern network solution you've been searching for. Visit Zayo's website today to unlock the power of your network and tap into the technologies of tomorrow. Go to zayo.com backslash network now. Welcome back everybody to another episode of IT Visionaries and across from me is Kit Colbert. Listen, you probably remember him from last time. But if you don't, he's here today. Kit, before we get going, I want to talk to you about modern applications. I want to talk to you about network. I want to talk about all the things that VMware is doing. But before we do that, just in case if someone's new to the game, let's say uh, you just, I don't know, graduated college and you're not familiar with VMware or something like that. What is VMware? What do you guys do? And why would I ask you so much about modern application development?
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. it's a good question. Well, thanks for having me. Happy to be back. Uh, love to dive into all these topics. So, of course, everyone knows VMware for our vSphere offering and you know the, the virtualization that we did on-prem. You know, We still do that, of course, but we do so much more in the subsequent 20-plus uh, years that we've been around. And really what we're about now is a, kind of a multi-cloud modern application company. That's what we're really focused on, this notion of helping customers to deal with using multiple public clouds in addition to what they have on-prem and at the edge, and then helping them to both build new applications as well as modernize their existing ones. So there's a whole bunch of cool tech that spans, that runs the gamut from infrastructure to security, to networking, to application platforms, to uh, end user computing, and and goes and goes. So we can talk a lot about all those things.
0: Yeah. And this is why you are the perfect guest to be on the show, because we read and we've done research and you know we've read surveys, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners know about this, about how... You know, enterprises have always had a lot of software subscriptions other, and custom software builds. But mm-hmm. this is relatively new. The idea of, first of all, cloud's young to begin with, but then multi-cloud is even younger. And what you're seeing is <laughs> what you just iterated is all these companies are now trying to take advantage of the best service. They are not as concerned where data is stored, although they do want mm-hmm. to move data closer to the, the compute. But now, data like any single application is actually a stitch. I don't even know if they would stitch is the right word, but it's interconnected of multiple services, possibly. And yep. so, tell me what that means for the developer. Tell me what that means for you guys delivering the service, because this is done obviously in virtual machines, it's done in cloud, it's done on it's, it's happening all the time. Yep. Where one software might be pinging who knows how many services just so I can, you know, get a notification. I don't know. I'm trying.
1: So let's take a step back, right? um, I think you're hitting on sort of a a large shift that we've seen in the industry. And uh, there's a whole bunch of different aspects to it. Uh, So traditionally, you had your data center, you had all your apps there, you had all your data there. And so there's this whole model of like everything happens within the data center. And yeah, there's outbound connections, you know, people can connect to it remotely and stuff. But By and large, you think about the network connectivity, you think about security, you kind of like, you know, uh, harden the perimeter around that data center, basically create a big moat and kind of protect it. Everything outside the data center was untrusted. Everything inside the data center was highly trusted, highly interconnected, you know, lots of networking and so forth. And you developed all your apps internally there as well. Now... What we've seen as customers have adopted public clouds is a few things. They started trying to do just one cloud, right? That was the whole idea of hybrid cloud. I'm going to have my public cloud, my one public cloud. I'm going to do my on-prem stuff. I'm going to connect them. And, you know, I've got my, again, my, my castle in the data center, well protected by its moat. And then I've got stuff in the public cloud and I'll secure that. I'll connect them. and, And you kind of have this point to point relationship. And that was this, you know, really nice theory that unfortunately didn't really, pan out in practice and the reason is because although customers and businesses tried their best to standardize on a single public cloud due to many different reasons they started using more than one cloud Mm -hmm. and that could be because they're doing acquisitions that use that have standardized on a different cloud it could be that a line of business decided they want to go use a different cloud for some reason maybe you know better technology for, for their use case or it could be that it's been a few years and clouds have changed and another cloud may be a bit further ahead now in a certain area of technology. So the point being that we see most customers now have multiple public clouds and to your point, applications are sort of strewn all over those things. So you got apps, you got data, uh, you gotta connect them up, you gotta figure out how to secure them. So. This notion that you have this like single place where everything resides and you can like, you know, kind of make the walls really big and protected around it just doesn't exist anymore. What you have instead is a much different architecture. That's something that's highly distributed with stuff sort of everywhere. And there is no real perimeter anymore, at least not a single perimeter. And so you've got many, many perimeters. And so that's the situation that I think many companies find themselves in now. So when you see that, right, and and that's. You know, this is like,
0: I don't want to call it Pandora's box, but there's there's no, I don't see it going back. There's no going back. There's, no. there's not going to be, a, there's never no. going to be a place in time in the future where one company is creating all the best services, all the best, everything. And everyone just goes, we're all in on this one company. It's just not going to happen yeah. anymore. Like that's, that's never going to happen again. So how does that influence like what your team and what you're yep. pushing your engineers to build yep. to help service this? Because the other thing that's not going back is our appetite for speed and responsiveness. Like no customer is
1: like, you (laughs) can slow it down. Totally. (laughs) And I think, you know, it's funny because on that last point, this notion of speed and, you know, in particular for cloud, this notion of self-service that a developer can go just get access to a VM or a resource or whatever they need to get the job done. They don't need to talk to anyone. They can just go get it. It creates a little bit of this complexity and chaos, right? So... The question is, and to your point, you're, you're absolutely right. I don't ever see this going back to the quote-unquote yeah. good old days, but maybe they weren't that good. I don't know. But to the old <laughs> days, in it's any just, case. Yeah, I just don't see it happening. So what's interesting about it is that I don't think most folks in the industry, vendors or businesses, people using this stuff, really realized that we'd end up in this multi-cloud state that we're in. Again, the thesis originally was that I'm going to standardize on a public cloud. I'm going to have my on-prem stuff. I'm going to connect those two. That's hybrid cloud, You know, point to point, very simple. Great. And so you look at what happened and the, the way that we implemented a lot of functionality uh, doesn't really work well in this multi-cloud era. So let me explain that. So if I go and standardize on a public cloud, I can't, usually just use it right by itself, right? I need to put some structure on it. I need to put some governance around it. Access controls, for instance. Uh, I don't want my developers, for instance, managing the account credentials. I want that to be in some system that can ha- handle it securely, rotate keys, everything, right? Uh, I want to do things like, uh, you know, security. To secure it, I want to have a disaster recovery plan, so on and so forth. So when you look at that list of stuff, uh, you know, maybe like build tools, CI/CD pipelines, so you look at that list of stuff, what people did was they specialized it to that particular cloud. So if you went in and said, I'm gonna standardize on AWS, you either use the AWS services or you built out a bunch of your own stuff, but that was customized and specific to AWS. And that's fine if you're using just one you know, one cloud. The problem is once they, again, started using a second cloud, they say, oh crap, well, all the stuff I just did for that first cloud doesn't work here. And they're like, well, um, since, you know, they, again, they looked at it as a one-off, they're like, okay, let me just re-implement a lot of this stuff on that second cloud. So I'm going to redo how I do security. I'm going to redo how I do uh, CICD pipelines. I'm going to redo how I do access control. And then for the third cloud, here we go again, they got to redo it. And so what you see is they sort of stamp out these things individually. And of course they have a whole other solution for how they do things in their on-prem private cloud. So you get this scenario where you've got all this sort of duplication, siloing, inconsistency across all these implementations. And In my view as a technologist is, you know, our problem, what was our problem there? Our problem there is really one of architecture where the services that we were building were specific to a single cloud. You might call them single cloud Mm -hmm. services. And I think the big shift that we're trying to drive in the industry is an architectural change away from just having single cloud services to having what we call cross cloud services. And the big shift here is that this service can implement functionality or capability once and have it apply and work consistently across anywhere where an application might run or where a person wants to put data. And so, you know, again, think about it from a, a security standpoint. You say, hey, I want to make sure that I can do incident response properly. So you implement that functionality and you want to be able to do that on AWS or Azure or on-prem or Google or at the edge. You want to do that all very consistently, having consistent sets of data coming back and so forth. So that's really the big industry shift. And I think, you know, to answer your question, how do we deal with this, given that this is a reality that's not going away, is to shift the architecture, is to go at it from the beginning with its design for cross-cloud. So that even if a business who maybe is just starting to get into cloud, and again, they're going through the same thing, I'm going to start with one cloud. It's like, okay, you do that, but make sure you adopt a cross-cloud architecture for those services from the beginning, just to give you that sort of optionality and flexibility, should there come a time where you're going to use more than one cloud.
0: And then when you think about this, this, this change in architectures, where is that going to be? I mean, it sounds like a combination of a couple of things. It sounds like some type of dynamic software systems that can recognize the ports and the gateways that need to be open to handle whichever data points and clouds that need to be there. It has to recognize mm-hmm. it like almost on its own because. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was in software dev and software services, it was just in 2017. So I mean, six not years, too long ago, but six years is a lifetime in software. <laughs> is. That is true. That's true. <laughs> six years a lot. But at the time when it was just when people were just starting to say like, hey, listen, uh, let's let's say I have all my data in storage in S3, and I want to be able to take advantage of um, you know a TensorFlow model in G- mm-hmm. GCP, and but in order to connect these data points securely. There's no like direct line. I have to op- move it through right. the public internet. I have to open these like different port services. Like Google has a port service, AWS has a port service. And then you needed an engineer who actually knew how to do it. And that was yep. the, the yep. like almost the holdup. Like you talked about, hey, people want to spin up and spin down instances in a second. In that gateway, they want to be able to probably do that too, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have to almost build like, it would be like universal piping. That's how I describe it to people yeah. who are um, not tech familiars. Like it's imagine like if you went to pipe, uh, you were to do any type of plumbing, but no matter what
1: pipe you went to the hardware store,
0: it could just adjust to whatever you needed.
1: That's mm-hmm. effectively what software people are trying to create. What you find is that there are going to be different types of these multi-cloud or cross-cloud services. I kind of use the two terms a little bit yeah. interchangeably. And so, you know, you're getting at a specific example where where you might want a networking cross-cloud right. service, i.e. to do some level of um, connectivity consistently. And what you could see there is a couple of things. So what that service might do is if you've got two applications or two components of an app that are within the same cloud, it would, it would not need to do any new functionality per se. Instead, what it can do is just manage the underlying cloud. Like for instance, on AWS, you just manage the VPCs, make right. sure they're connected and so forth. Right. And you can set, the, set that from a policy perspective. But then if you're connecting across clouds, Okay. Well, there you're going to need some new functionality to figure out how to do that and do that maybe in the most intelligent way and try to reduce egress charges and you know all these other sorts of things, right? Um, you know, We're doing some really interesting stuff with uh, colo providers like Equinix because they sit very close to a lot of these public clouds. And so they yeah. might have a, a, a data center in a certain location that's proximate both to maybe AWS and to Google. So that you can then leverage that as you're intermediary between the two and having the right sort of cross cloud service can help to orchestrate that for you. So, you know, networking is one of those things uh, you know, there's management aspects. There's a whole bunch of different ones, but essentially, you know, the way we see it is there's going to be sort of this decomposition of functionality and you're going to have these different sort of categories of services. And ideally we could create an overall architecture where there's high degrees of interoperability and compatibility kind of clean APIs between each of these. So that you get a little bit of modularity, So that, you know, you're not kind of locked into any single vendor, but instead you get some choice in terms of how you bring the best, you know, networking cross cloud service and management cross cloud service and security cross cloud service together, but in a way that they're going to work. You used a keyword just a second ago, which I
0: remember in, you know, like I said, just six, seven years ago where they talked about like there were going to be more orchestration tools emerging and it was like a new category, which is like there's going to be tools to manage tools and sound like, well, wow, that sounds mm-hmm. terrible, uh, <laughs> but, but, but it's necessary because like you said, people want to build applications. They don't want to figure out how to put these pieces together. They want to build yep. applications that serve customers. They don't want to, I don't know to, I don't want to connect this stuff up. Um, and when you think about that levels of orchestrate, is that how like you're guiding your teams to think is like, hey, the first thing I want you to think about, l- let's imagine I work for you and I I'm, I have this great idea. I want to say, hey, I, I have this new service. I think it'll be killer. It's going to be great for everybody. What are like some fundamental principles? You're like pushing all your top engineers, product managers, like, hey, you guys got to think this way. It sounds yep. like this like orchestration piece is part of it. Give us an idea of how VMware and your team is thinking about building services and applications to help the next wave Mm -hmm. of modern application development?
1: A couple of things. So as I said, you know, we are trying to get that overall architecture and um, sort of the modularity aspect figured out. And so then the question is, okay, what sort of service is this and how does that fit into that? But then for the specific service, one of the things that we're really working on is how do we as quickly as possible get some basic version, some, you know, initial implementation of the service out to the end users? So one of the things we're working on is uh, so we have this thing that, that we call flings, which is basically a way of like us delivering software, pre, pre-release software out to users to get feedback. Right. Okay. It's, it's a piece of software. You have to install it and manage it yourself. So we want to do the same thing, but for services. Right. To, to deliver a cloud service in that same way. So what we're really trying to do. Is get out there, get some early users and get that immediate feedback and that, you know, and then be able to cycle very quickly on that feedback to improve the service and make sure that there's real product market fit there. So for me, that's actually the first thing that I push the engineers and the teams on is like, make sure to validate product market fit as early as possible, right? Because oftentimes what you find is you're actually a little bit wrong about how you think you want to solve this and and what you think is Mm -hmm. best for the customer. Um, but the best way to, to validate that is actually get it out there and get someone really using it, right? So that's, you know, and and what you're going to see is us sort of building out that overall architecture uh, with more and more of these sort of cross-cloud services. I'm curious for yourself, wh- what do you
0: see in the next five, 10 years? How do you see VMware transforming? Because you, you talked about like, mm-hmm. hey, listen, we're no- mm-hmm. most known for this. That was 20 years ago. But it's yep. becoming <laughs> like, I the way I described it so is like it's more like a Enterprise toolkit. Like, I don't like it's <laughs> right. really good. Like, a, right. uh, like a, it's like a, v- a huge array of tools that can help you build
1: wherever you need to build. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think we're getting much more into the application space just in general. Yeah. You know, if you look at vSphere and what we did from an infrastructure perspective, we supported applications, but we didn't really get inside, quote unquote, the application. And I think where we're going now is getting that much deeper. Um, what we're doing with Tanzu in terms of a number of things, right? Developer experience, secure software supply chain. Uh, There's a whole Kubernetes operational aspect to it as well. Um, But, you know, to kind of zoom out a little bit, so where are we going overall as a company? It is kind of a five to 10 year journey about how do we enable this sort of multi-cloud architecture? And what does that look like? And we think we have an opportunity to be sort of the center of that kind of the, the foundational building block which supports sort of this platform and framework in our, interoperability our of all these different components. And so we see this as a pretty massive uh an in industry shift that's happening and we really want to be at the center of it.
0: Yeah, the the we read one of your later or more recent press releases um it was about what happened at Mobile World Congress where yep. uh VMware announced it was going to enter the or I guess you've always been there but expand uh, SD-WAN clients. Uh, so for yeah. anyone listening, who's not as familiar, a uh, software defined wide area networking uh, is, yeah. uh, is the SD-WAN is the acronym. And uh, you know, I, I, I'll do a disservice, but kid, go ahead real quickly, describe <laughs> it. And then why are you getting sure. into the space?
1: Sure. <laughs> yeah. So there's, you know, there's a bunch of different pieces about it. So you know, I think about SD-WAN, the, the most basic piece is there's a connectivity piece. So traditionally, if you had a, a remote office, a branch office, a retail store, you know, whatever it is, you need to pay the telcos for a premium, you know, uh, enterprise grade connection, you know, a one and up, right? And these things are, are quite, can be quite expensive. Yeah. And so obviously, you know, now you have the proliferation of consumer grade broadband out there, which is much cheaper and oftentimes, you know, just as fast. The problem, though, is it's quite unreliable, uh, not to mention there's potential security issues there and so forth. So, you know, what WAN really does is it sits like this little like, physical box, right? That sits on the site wherever you are and connects out into these. Um, well, there could be consumer enterprise, whatever you want, but usually people do broadband type things. And essentially, and it connects up to the cloud and then connects you wherever you need to go. But essentially what it does is it um, is able to leverage sometimes multiple broadband connections to do high availability across them. It's able to combine them to get greater performance. Uh, there's a whole bunch of manageability aspects there as well about how you can route traffic intelligently, right? You don't, if you know, you're going out to Microsoft 365, you don't want to hairpin that through the data center. You want to go straight out to the internet, right? So you can sort of uh cordon off network traffic to do the right thing, go in the right way, be very efficient and get to where it needs to go. And then the third piece is really, uh, I mentioned earlier around security, yeah, really tightening down the, this space and and, you know. Uh, ensuring that you can have high degrees of uh, trust of the different devices and, and apps coming in and that we also make sure to shuttle all that data securely to where it needs to go. So that's really the, the idea with SD-WAN. And as I mentioned, historically, it has been a physical um, appliance. Now, we do offer a virtual appliance as well. We've offered that for a while. So you could, if you have a um, just a regular you know server, you can run a VM with SD-WAN, NSX SD-WAN on it. But the news that you're referring to is actually, you know, a software client that can run on the desktop as well. We now offer a client or a software client for, uh, you know, a personal device and a uh, you know, desktop computer. And, you know, the idea there is that we want to give all the same great functionality, uh, but enable it to be mobile. So wherever that computer happens, especially right. it's a laptop, you're traveling around. You're not going to lug this other, you know, <laughs> physical appliance device. And you probably don't have, you know, the capacity to run like a virtual machine. So let's just do something simple, right? And that's really the the thinking behind that. Hey there, IT Visionaries
0: listeners. It's time to supercharge your network with Zayo, the North American leader in modern network infrastructure. Zayo connects critical data centers across the United States, Canada, and Europe with high-capacity metro fiber and extensive long-haul dark fiber. Trusted by the world's most innovative companies, Zayo embodies what's next in networking. Discover Zayo's expansive network maps on their website and see where their network can take you. With low-latency, reliable 400G and 800G-enabled routes, it's the modern network solution you've been searching for. Visit Zayo's website today to unlock the power of your network and tap into the technologies of tomorrow. Go to zeocom network. Right now, how many years behind do you think the industry is? Because we had we obviously had the 2020 to 2022, huge digital transformation, mad com- you know, many, many companies were forced to change the way they operated very quickly, uh, of course, allowing remote work. But I still heard, or we still had guests that were talking about, hey, there's still a lot of companies that are trying to hairpin back all their traffic back to that physical box that's at their corporate location so that it makes it seem like all the remote workers are now working inside that building and then they can get access to their resources. It's like a very antiquated, I mean, it says antiquated, it's like three (laughs) years old, you know what I mean? Three years old. (laughs) Things move fast. Yeah, things move fast. How many companies, I mean, because this is an interesting seat that you have. Are comp- have all companies completely shifted or are they like demanding to no, no, shift it's, to
1: SD-WAN? It's, like, a, pro- it's a process. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to your point, we do see a lot of that sort of hairpinning and the reason they do that, by the way, again, if you go back to the old model, there was no real security at that edge location, at that retail store. Yeah. Uh, said that the T1 or whatever it was brought everything or the MPLS, I guess is the better. T1's a very antiquated. Anyway, the MPLS <laughs> link went straight into the data center And that way they could then, uh, IT and security could then apply all of the security checks and so forth. And so this, you know, what what they're trying to do is sort of make work this old model, uh, this notion of the data center as uh, the castle that you got to protect, right? That everything inside is highly trusted, everything outside is not. They're trying to like uh, amend that a little bit by saying, well, this remote location is actually kind of part of the data center. That's how we connected in. So like network wise, it kind of looks like, quote unquote, it's part of the data center. And that way, everything that's exiting the data center will still go through all the same security checks and we do all that stuff and blah, blah, blah. Right. But that approach fails to fully acknowledge is that the world we're living in is just very different. Yeah. And so this architecture shift here that we're talking about is is what they generally call zero trust. And so the zero trust mindset is saying, okay, we're not in this old world of everything's in one data center. And it's like, you know, the you protect it um, from everything outside. Instead, you got this highly distributed world. And so what you have to do is you have to actually implement security at all these different locations. So you got to do it. Yes. Still the data center, but you also have to do it at the retail location. Yeah. And that way, you know, you don't trust, you know, the connection between them or whatever, that you validate everything. And as it comes out. You can then make you know secure connections to you know other secure areas like in the data center, or maybe a different edge location. So what it is is it's sort of uh, driving in a distributed fashion a lot of these things that used to be centralized, and I think that's the really big shift that we're seeing with SD WAN is it's a very different management model and uh, or maybe I should say architecture, and we can enable that management model uh, at a very high scale uh, sense and um, and so you know I think companies are starting to see it because there's just so many challenges with the old way of doing things. There are security challenges, there's management challenges, there's performance challenges, the list goes on and on. But if you really kind of opened up your mind to it, you can say, hey, we can really think about things completely differently and adopt this net new architecture. So it's happening, right? And we we do see a lot of interest from customers for SD-WAN and really this broader zero trust architecture. But it's, again, one of those things that takes time just because there's so many other conflicting priorities and things to do. And sometimes people just don't really know about it or understand it. So, you know, I, I think it's one of those things that'll take time to work itself out. But there is clearly a direction to the industry uh going toward that zero trust architecture.
0: So that's the next question is, you know, that the original thought process was, well, it's we could secure it, right? I can everything in this <laughs> everything in this building is secured. Everything yep. outside the building yep. is insecure. You mentioned that. Now we know that data is now moving, like you said, Peer to data center, peer to peer, and across every single computer is its own endpoint. Who knows who's you know you want you want to be able to track it all, yep, and also secure it all. And so you mentioned zero trust. Where do you see net uh, you know data security, network security, device mm-hmm. security, appliance whatever you want to call it. Where where yeah. will VM roles? Play in that because that is pretty fascinating because yeah. that is that's that demands also not going away <laughs>
1: it's not and it you know really requires uh, some deep integration across these different areas you know the, the notion again of zero trust is instead of having this like single sort of circle of trust that's your data center right this kind of big thing that you stuff a lot of stuff into you're kind of like um, shrinking that circle down and you have a lot of them right yeah. yeah you still have one in the data center but maybe you have multiple circles in that data center now and you got one uh, around that office, and maybe with the software client we have here, you got a tiny little circle around your laptop, right, or, or your phone. Yeah. And so, you know, how do these devices play in? Well, here's the interesting thing: when you start getting into these sort of mobile device management capabilities, you can then understand what we call posture. You know, how's that phone or device configured? Does it is it within our uh, parameters uh, that we set? Also, you can, you know, get location information. Where is this thing coming from? Uh, how did this person log in? What sort of authentication do they use? Are they authenticated? So you can use all these different data points to inform the level of access you want to give that device. So for instance, if you see uh, someone that usually is based in uh, the US and, uh, you know, connecting from there and logging in a certain way, and all of a sudden the device is in a different country, or maybe like got carted off to Russia or something, <laughs> you say, okay, <laughs> that looks a little suspicious. Like what's going on there? I didn't, you know, we have no data showing that that person was supposed to be traveling there, blah, blah, blah. Maybe the device has been compromised. Maybe it's been stolen. Uh, so you can then sort of shut down access. So, you know, we we have a really uh, strong portfolio of capabilities. We call them our anywhere workspace capabilities that provide that sort of identity, user identity, device, et cetera, management. And that plugs in. To the SD-WAN framework and uh, to what we're doing with network virtualization and NSX as well. And um, the reason for that is because we can use that sort of posture and essentially risk information to then inform what sort of policies we have and, and access that we give to a user with those devices. So as I said, you know, w- when you look and think about zero trust, it really is a lot of different disciplines coming together in order to make that a reality.
0: Yeah, the the and then when I hear you talk about this, the next my next question starts thinking more towards a large majority of our audience. So a large majority of our audience, as I mentioned before, is in this like five, let's say one zero to five hundred employees kind of world. Yep, a lot of them are software led. Um, some are hardware based and they make physical things, but most of them are so, uh, technology first, software products, and yep. so they're building their companies and they're expanding at what point do you think in general companies start knocking on VMware's door and they're like, wait a second, we're kind of growing. <laughs> like we, yeah. we need to do things we can no longer do because I remember being in the software company where we were like, and again, I'm, I'm aging myself, but you know, we were just in a single cloud. It wasn't really a problem. Mm-hmm. We were only in one zone. Like, you know, like that's like, for bit, that's like, that's <laughs> we like, a big oh. problem. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And we, when we, um, we, I remember we landed a customer, Singapore Air, and they're like, "Your software is ungodly slow." And we're like, "What do you mean?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> Singapore this, Airlines, is like, this is terrible. Like, we can't use they're it. They're accessing like, it from Singapore and it's in the U.S. or something. Yeah, right? I was like, "Well, well how long issue? does it take for
0: the image to load?" You know, <laughs> and they're and you know they're they're only saying it's like you know we we all know this in engineering is like a couple seconds. Might as well, you might as well just say the thing doesn't work. <laughs> like people yep. don't want to wait yep. a couple yep. seconds. When do when do you see companies coming forward and I'm like, hey man, I need to I need to virtualize some stuff, I need to expand yeah. some stuff, I need I can't be everywhere
1: it really varies, you know. Um so you know, we have we have multiple lines of business, right? And so the infrastructure side, you see many different types there, right? Um we do have people, you know, you look at uh companies that may have store locations and need infrastructure at the store, and there's something they'll come and talk to us about. Um, but you know, you look at, uh, app development and there's a bunch of cool technology that we've got there. And that's something that again, pretty early on we see customers coming in asking for help with, uh, things like, you know, device management, uh, what what we do with anywhere workspace, that's another one. So, you know, we see people coming in from numerous different reasons. You know, another one I'm pretty excited about is, um, a relatively new product of ours, uh, VMware ransomware recovery. Oh, So this is one that's another, like, this is another really cool example of how we're pulling together a bunch of different pieces of our capabilities to make a holistic solution. So what you see out there is a lot of vendors doing ransomware recovery uh, through a backup technology, basically taking periodic snapshots of the files. And then when, uh, if that thing gets broken into and, you know, it gets encrypted for ransomware, well, you can just go back through the backups and find the one before the encryption happened and, you know, you're good to go, right? It turns out you're not actually because whatever ransomware, uh, malware was on that device is still there. <laughs> you know, it hasn't been activated yet, but if you, if you, re- if you, you know, turn it, turn that older image back on sure, soon enough, it will be. So you got to do a whole bunch of work to get that stuff out of there. Um, and that's really where we see a lot of the challenge with ransomware recovery. And so what we do is this really interesting approach where we use our VMware cloud disaster recovery, which does, you know, backups, right? Uh, replication up to the cloud and take snapshots. And so when uh, an encryption occurs and you need to try to undo that, you can use our tools to start to understand, okay, um, when, when did that occur? Let me find a backup that was before that. And then what we do is we actually launch that. We install our Carbon Black agent, which is doing endpoint security. Uh, we, we launched a copy of the VM in a constrained, controlled environment in VMware Cloud on AWS. And so that is now running, but it can't talk to the network. You know, we lock it down. And that allows you as a user to go in there and use Carbon Black to help ferret out where that malware is, right? Huh. And once you think you've got it, we can then, you know, go basically have like a few different protection levels. We can start opening things up just a little bit to see what happens, to see if you get re-encrypted, you know. So we basically automate this whole process and allow you to get it, you know, to, to bring it back online live, but in a way that's very safe. So it's through the combination of our disaster recovery solution, VMware Cloud and AWS, as well as our Carbon Black endpoint security solution can create this thing. And the reason I brought up this ransomware recovery is that it's just such a top of mind issue for so many customers, both large and small, right? And um, this is one of those examples where, you know, it's very easy to get started with. And, um, you know, we really just take all of the, the guesswork out of it.
0: You said this is a completely automated process. Is that accurate?
1: It's mostly automated. There's yeah. still some manual aspects to it um, because we, what we try to do is help the user to figure out what they want to do. You know, which backup do they want to take? How do they validate that they've, that we found the malware and gotten it out of there? You know, these sorts of things, right? So what you just said was like ridiculously cool
0: to think that you could have one computer. Cause like, you know, you, you could roll back your machine instantly then remove the machine from everyone else and then have yeah. a thing kind of, like you just said, expand capabilities a little bit until it's identified and be like, I found it.
1: Yeah, slowly turn on network access and other things. Yeah, it's pretty, it's so like, you know, like you might say, hey, let's do internet traffic first. And if nothing goes haywire, then okay, maybe we start letting some east-west traffic in and see what happens there. Because sometimes what you find is that um, maybe there's some remote thing on the network that uh, will will uh, activate the ransomware. and It's not coming from the internet. It's coming from some other mm. uh, impacted host or server within the network. So anyway, there's a whole bunch of these different things that we do. And yeah, I mean, the, the, the reality is a lot of people do this. They try to do it all manually and it's just, it's such a headache and, and you know, they keep getting re-encrypted. <laughs> so yeah, so we're trying to simplify it. That process you just described is actually like, it feels more like an epidemiology study. It's kind of cool. <laughs> It is. is. It's (laughs) really, really interesting, actually, uh, the sort of challenges that people have. And, you know, ransomware, as you know, is just a massive, massive problem. And we were talking about like I don't know what the number is like hundreds of billions of dollars here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And growing yeah. every year. So in
0: only the biggest cases now make the news. Like uh, I saw, yeah. I saw like ransomware of like a public utility, excuse mm-hmm. me, public a municipality. Um, and the ask was,
1: I, mean, I guess a nominal fee. They paid it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think like I saw some public school system as well got hacked and yeah. Yeah. It's not good. This is tough stuff, but you know, we try to make it as simple as possible. Yeah, this is super cool.
0: You know, the the other thing I wanted to ask you about, since you are, you know, exceptionally knowledgeable on the subject, is there was, a, for a while, there was like a debate about what is, you know, the word edge is used a lot. What is the edge? <laughs> You know what I mean? And some people are saying, well, you know, network speed is going to get so fast that you don't actually need to move compute to the edge because you can just move the data back to your compute, wherever that may be, and send it right back. It's going to improve. Then people like, well, microservices are going to get so impressive that you can move those closer. So you don't need the big network to move back. And then of course, network requires the actual infrastructure to be there. We automatically know we actually had a cool guest that was on talking about like the wind tunnels in Wyoming, which are about the power of California. I don't know if you saw that California bottom line, but like in, Like the service techs in Wyoming, they had no way of like getting any type of cloud application to see like, let's say diagrams and or how to videos like they're in the middle of nowhere. Right. And so we were talking about that. And like, so in your opinion, you know, the edge is like a loose term. What is going to happen is is it going to be where we're going to just get so fast that you can have central yep. compute? Is it always going to be compute's going to move closer to the location because you can't depend on network? Like
1: where I think you'll see a little bit of everything. I mean, it's kind of like the old computer science answer. It depends. Right? Yeah, it's There's got a lot of factors, but it's a term with no definition. What's Exactly. The, like, well, let's talk it through. I mean, so <laughs> when I think about edge, the way I think about it is that we're really talking about any location that's not a data center or a cloud or a colo, right? Yeah. Now, typically what you find with edge locations is that IT personnel are not uh, on-premises there. Yes, And so um, what that means is that you've got to do sort of remote management. you got to automate a lot of things and so forth because you can't have someone running out there every time something goes wrong. I see a lot of different use cases around edge. I think that you look at um, a retail store, or anything like a factory where, you know, um, operations, uh, operational capabilities matter and any sort of downtime can be hugely yeah. impactful to revenue, right? Now, again, there's there's ways of trying to to get around that on the connectivity side. You know, again, SD-WAN comes into play there. You can have multiple connections and, and do sort of failover that way. But the other use case we see is actually just for some of these things, it's a latency issue mm. that um, – you know, uh, I know a number of factories where they have machines that are working and maybe building cars or doing whatever they're doing. And yeah, you have a whole bunch of telemetry looking at that uh, machine. And you need a computer to be analyzing that telemetry and looking for any potential flaws or, you know, is it getting over uh, overheated or these other sorts of issues and be able to very quickly take remedial uh, actions to solve whatever problem it might be. So there you know you have a situation where latency actually and availability of course become top of mind um, sometimes it's just too costly that maybe you can have a, a remote connection but there's just so much data like you think about like video cameras right mm-hmm. like this giant amount of data and you can analyze it and you know the insights you get out of that analysis are usually pretty small in size you're talking like <laughs> less than one percent of the overall video feed uh, data size so these are all reasons why we think that you know edge, We'll be here to stay, but it really depends on the use case. Now, I think where we as an industry are going with Edge, and by the way, then there's a the whole telco space, which I won't even get into because it's a little bit, their use cases are a little bit uh, more unique than what we see generally across enterprises. But you know, when we think about Edge, what we, what we tend to think about it as is how do you bring Edge into the cloud era? And in some ways, what it would be nice is if you could programmatically reference an edge just like any other AZ. So if I want to put a workload, you know, in the cloud, I just you know say what AZ it wants to go to, and of course the system there in the cloud will figure out okay which exact computer within that. But you can also imagine starting to manage edges as just another AZ, right? And so you can sort of programmatically refer to them. You can do workload placement there. You can do management. You can do some of these other things. So you're not going to have the elasticity of a cloud, but you're going to have some of the other capabilities um, that, that go along with it. So that's a lot of what we're really focused on is how do you bring that sort of cloud uh, capability and uh, model really out to the edge? I want to say, first of
0: all, thank you for being here. You know, I, the, um, it's been fun. I've, it's been fun hearing a lot of <laughs> things that you guys are working on, thinking of how you're seeing the future of application development. And I, I was thinking about, that term edge, right? Really what everyone wants to, when we're on the consumer side, I think about it for myself is it's just a race to make things faster and more efficient. You know what I mean? Like that, that's, yep. that's what it is means for us as consumers. Like everyone's trying to figure out how to do bigger things closer to you so that whatever it is just operates faster. Like that's, <laughs> that's, yep. that's what it is on the consumer side. And so I'll to to us, we think to as a consumer, it's like oh, it doesn't matter like what what's going to move first. So I like the way you were approaching, it, which is like, well, I guess you know, unfortunately, it, it really does depend. It's like whatever your application use case is, you got to use the the tooling that gets that <laughs> makes that happen. The consumer doesn't actually know because I remember there was a long debate like what's going to actually happen, and the answer is always everything. Everything's going to happen. Like <laughs> there is no one thing. I
1: mean, yeah, you look across, uh, it's a little bit of everything. Yeah. So. And that's really how we're trying to design it as well. It's, I think one of the biggest values people are looking for is that sort of optionality and flexibility, but at the same time, not getting overwhelmed or mired in unnecessary complexity yeah. either. And that's kind of the, the tricky balance.
0: We've almost done with the hour, but I have to ask you this because you are the CTO of the company that's overseeing all this stuff. Uh-huh. So the amount of things you have to learn and get proficient at, possibly master just keeps getting wider there is no like that's also true (laughs) too right yeah (laughs) right yep you you know you're one of the you're one of the few people we've talked to on the show ever that is you know started as like just a don't want to say entry level but you know you got that was an entry level engineer engineer. (laughs) you're now the CTO. (laughs) well i don't don't want to you know first job but That's you get my, a, yeah. like, how, what is your philosophy on this continuous learning? Because yes, we all have continuous yeah. learning, but some of us kind of have capacity for things. Like we can only oversee so many things. And like the amount of things that you guys oversee at VMware and the technologies that you have to uh, get really proficient at, if not master, just continues to increase and it's never going away.
1: So it does. <laughs> You're right. And it's, it's a challenge. Um, I mean, I so saw a couple of things, right? For me personally, uh, in my role now, like i you know, I, I don't have as much time to really dig into like the details of all the tech. Like I know things kind of at a high level and, sure. and have some sense about how the products work and, and can explain it to some degree. But this is a big problem uh, that we see with a lot of customers. Like one of the biggest challenges that we see is actually their inability to hire the right sort of expertise. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is where, you know, when we start looking at uh, what we're talking about with multi-cloud and cross-cloud services, you know, today what you need is you need, you know, if you've got multiple clouds, you need an on-prem team, you need an AWS team, you need uh, an Azure team, you need a Google team. So basically you need a team for each of these different environments. And that will probably always be the case. But the question is, can we take a lot of those people who are spread out across many of the teams and use them to work on these cross-cloud services, these sort of common sets of capabilities Um, that can hopefully reduce you know, the overall uh, need across the company. And then at an individual level, you know, I do think it's all about continuous learning and, you know, sort of pushing yourself, right? And there's, you know, some obvious things like, you know, we, we see a lot happening around Kubernetes in the cloud native space. Now, you know, I think it's an absolute imperative to learn how, you know, machine learning, large language models, et cetera, work and some of the tooling, you know, open source tools like Ray and so forth. There's a bunch of these things out there personally i see like the industry being at another large inflection point with the rise of large language models and just machine learning more generally i think it's going to be a foundational change to how we do almost everything how we develop code how we you know produce marketing material like you know all sorts of stuff like write documents so this is really going to be foundational so this is you know as we talked about the pace is is pretty wild and pretty fast but you gotta set aside time for that learning, and I think that's something I try to do. Of course, a bit in a microcosm, because uh, I don't go nearly as deep as you know the technical experts. But that's also the fun part about it, though. You know, it's like fun to learn this new stuff and to play with and kind of geek out with the cool new stuff.
0: All right, so I got one final question for you before our time's up. You know, you've covered so much. It's great hearing the way you and your team are thinking about modern application development, and like we said, it's not going to go away. So, if you had advice. For let's say there's a CTO, CIO, listening to this show, they're at a couple hundred employees and they're about to expand, multi-location, multi, you know, hybrid. They got to go wider availability zones. They're starting to land enterprise customers that are pushing them further ahead. Yep. How would you recommend they get their answers? Because they all have questions, right? Like, so it doesn't matter what the question is. Where should they go? Who's the trusted resource? Or where would you go to say, hey? This is what where you would go to learn because you mentioned before that like you're always on a continuous learning path so where yep. should be my first or second place i go to get that resource because if you just google stuff who knows where you'll
1: go <laughs> yeah i mean chat gpt can provide a lot of answers <laughs> i think <laughs> oh dang <laughs> uh, <laughs> no look i mean i think it really depends on you know what you're trying to do so if I, if i'm talking to someone in that position you know, they're likely what they do is they, they have a small, what we call platform team. This is a team that provides a lot of these sort of common services and, and, and the plumbing that supports the product teams. And that'd be a big focus for me because like getting that, that platform team properly set up so that they are focused on the sort of cross cloud architecture so that, you know, they, they can support additional clouds when and if necessary. Uh, that sort of initial investment right now will actually pay off Uh, dividends in the years to come, right? So it's really about how do you get that sort of um, posture such that you're ready for these, you know, whatever might come your way. There you go. That is the advice of the day. If you're out there listening, get
0: yourself a platform team that gets talking about and start doing a lot of homework. It will pay itself off in the future. Kit, I want to say thanks again for joining us today on IT Visionary. It was, it was great having you. I'm sure our millions of listeners will be dialing, uh, excuse me, dialing in, tuning in. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I age myself again. All right, you know what I mean? Exactly. Tuning in. Like, <laughs> All good. I said dial in once and when someone looked at me like, what are you talking about? What does dialing in mean? He asked me. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, uh, I don't know.
1: (laughs) What does that even mean anymore? I don't know. Thanks again for joining us today on IT Visionaries. All right. Thanks for having me. It was fun as always.